Okay, so this is number three of our Science and Faith series here at St. Patrick's. We've done two so far on Science and Faith, so in our first meeting we watched video number one of the Science and Faith Aquinas 101 series. We talked a little bit about the history of science, the history of Western thought about science. In our second meeting, we did three more videos. And these videos are coming out um, every couple weeks, so, so one just came out the other day. So there's, there's plenty more where this came from. We're just getting the, uh, the faucet open. So there were three videos added in our series last week, and then this week, I plan to have us just watch two. So we'll watch uh, one called Against Physicalist Reductionism, and then talk a little bit about that. We're, we've provided a paper and pens if you want to take notes so you can think of questions or discussion type things. Uh, so we'll watch one video and then take a little break to discuss, and then a second video about the idea of substantial form which is important for this whole proposal about science according to the mind of Thomas Aquinas. So, today is the Feast of St. Bartholomew, and in the liturgy, there was a reading from John Chrysostom about the apostles. I just want to begin with a little reading from St. John Chrysostom. It was clear, through unlearned men, that the cross was persuasive. In fact, it persuaded the whole world. Their discourse was not of unimportant matters, but of God and true religion, of the gospel way of life and future judgment. Yet it turned plain, uneducated men into philosophers. How the foolishness of God is wiser than men and his weakness stronger than men. Let us begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty Father, you call us to be lovers of wisdom, seekers of the truth, and to bear the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, his cross and resurrection, to the ends of the earth and to the dark corners of our own world. Pour out that love of wisdom which fired the apostles, motivate us to study the difficult things of faith and of reality, and give us gifts of understanding, knowledge, and wisdom that we may come to know your will and do it with promptness and joy. We ask all this through the intercession of St. Thomas Aquinas, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What is the ultimate explanation of the world? Philosophy in the perennial tradition recognizes two basic alternative answers, matter or mind. Matter with its properties and forces, or mind with its ordering activity at work in everything. Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas deny that matter with its properties and forces is an adequate explanation of the world. For all the material things of nature are shot through with form, and where there is form, there is a manifestation of mind, a mind irreducible to one thing 
or all of them, yet permeating them all and suffusing them with form and working power. The forms of the things of nature are a manifestation of the mind of God, and matter is formed according to his wisdom, and his wisdom is formulated in the principles and laws of nature. But what about the opposing position, that the ultimate explanation of everything is not the divine mind, but simply material things, space, time, various forces, and brute factual laws? Is that true? Is that a reasonable explanation of everything? The view that matter, or physical things, explains everything is traditionally called materialism, or naturalism, and today goes by the name of physicalist reductionism. Physicalist reductionism is the view that physics explains everything. It is not that science explains everything, but specifically physics. All other sciences, such as biology and chemistry and psychology, are reducible to physics and all things whatsoever can be explained in terms of physics alone. With enough progress, someday the true, final, complete physics will give us the last word on reality. So what shall we say in reply to physicalist reductionism? Does physics explain everything? Physicalist reductionism clashes with the evidence on a number of levels, and many considerations combine to form a cumulative case for rejecting it. To begin with, if physicalist reductionism is true, then one science is completely reducible to another. However, prominent historians and philosophers of science have shown that over the course of the actual history of science, no one science has ever been completely reduced to another. And if that is true for the reduction of one whole science to another, how much more so for the reduction of all sciences to physics alone. Now, in response, someone might say that although no science has ever been completely reduced to another, nevertheless, such a reduction could be done in principle, or if we were smart enough. But such a response simply reasserts the position that is here being questioned. And there are further, more specific reasons to doubt it could be done even in principle. It seems that physicalist reductionism is something of a philosopher's fantasy. More than a few actual working scientists recognize serious limits of their methods, limits to what science can tell us, and they doubt the possibility of a complete reduction of all sciences to physics. Furthermore, as scientific inquiry has continued over the course of the centuries, many scientists and philosophers have found increasingly more evidence against reductionist sorts of explanations. More and more thinkers are recognizing the reality of emergent properties across nature. Emergent properties are features of whole entities that cannot be explained in terms of the parts alone, or the properties of the parts. Tornadoes are one common example, and in a later video, a physicist will provide more examples. But physicalist reductionism clashes with the evidence in a more radical way. In philosophy, intuitions are evidence. Intuitions are not just feelings or hunches. They are acts of reason, 
born from reflecting upon total experience, and intuitions are truth-indicating. Now, we have powerful and reasonable intuitions that human beings are free agents, that human beings are capable of knowing objective moral truth, that human life has an objective purpose and meaning, that our search for God and happiness is not pointless or in vain, that human beings have intrinsic dignity and worth, that life is worth living, love is real, and so too our minds, our consciousness, and our relationships with one another. If physicalist reductionism is true, however, then it seems that in the last analysis, all of these powerful and reasonable intuitions are false. According to more than a few physicalist reductionists, all such things are the illusions of a pre-scientific account of reality and folk psychology. That is why we sometimes hear it said that educated and enlightened people should just accept the fact that there is no God, there is no such thing as free will, life has no objective purpose, humans have no intrinsic dignity and worth, we are no different in kind from robots and machines, love is just chemicals in the brain, and our minds, consciousness, and relationships are all just physical. But claims such as these clash with our fundamental intuitions, and so clash with properly philosophical evidence. And that is a good reason to reject them, as well as the physicalist reductionism from which they come. In response to such a litany of denials of God, freedom, love, dignity, meaning, and purpose, two replies are in order. First, it is not science that makes these claims, and science does not justify them. They are, rather, the implications of a specific philosophy that says physics alone explains everything. And that philosophy clashes with both empirical and intuitive evidence. Second, when we hear the litany of denials of God, freedom, love, dignity, meaning, and purpose, we can see that not only is physicalist reductionism false, but it is a force for the psychological destruction of human beings. After all, when you hear it said that there is no such thing as freedom, love, or meaning in life, what is your reaction? Are you feeling a bit depressed? That experience is worth noting. One of the most prominent psychologists of the 20th century, Viktor Frankl, once said that many psychological disorders come from living in an existential void, a situation in which the sense of life's meaning and purpose has been evacuated. And he has also said that an existential void has now become widespread in our society due to indoctrination along reductionist lines. In other words, Viktor Frankl attributed the increasing amount of psychological disorders in our society to the propagation of physicalist reductionism, and he predicted that so long as the indoctrination continued, psychological disorders would increase. Experience has fulfilled his prediction. But philosophy in the perennial tradition offers us something better. Human beings have spiritual souls and free will. We were made for the true and the good, for love and for beauty, for happiness, and for the God of eternal wisdom and love. Given our basic experience and the evidence available to us, the reasonable thing to do is to reject physicalist reductionism and even oppose it.
It is a false philosophy and a formula for spiritual death. There is another way to understand ourselves and the world, a philosophy that coheres with what human beings actually are and experience and know to be true. The true wisdom is more than science and way more than physics and tells us to be open to God and his light. For readings, podcasts, and more videos like this, go to Aquinas101.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for one of our free video courses on Okay, and you see that there's resources available for further study if you want. Okay, so thoughts, questions? Juan Manuel. Oh, the question is what is the Thomistic Institute? Um, in, I, I know a lot about what the Thomistic Institute is. That was my job before coming here. Uh, so, at our, our seminary, our House of Formation in Washington, D.C., about 10, 15 years ago, um, some of the Dominican friars there who were on the faculty started a research institute to promote Thomas Aquinas. Um, so, so we think of Thomas Aquinas as one of the central figures of the Catholic tradition, but in a lot of ways he was, uh, he was kicked to the curb institutionally in the 20th century. So this was a little way for Dominicans to start to, start to bring him back. And yeah, at first it was a, a research institute that was, you know, putting on academic conferences and trying to promote Thomas Aquinas in the academy still is that, and has expanded to uh, do all kinds of different things, and particularly um, starting local chapters at college campuses. So, so the Thomistic Institute is, has been successful in, in making some inroads in, in the academy, in philosophy and theology and even science a little bit, but then also with undergrads who feel kind of lost um, you know, whether they're Catholics or atheists, maybe feel like um, they don't have any kind of clear way of even beginning to think about basic questions about reality and God and freedom. So through, through these campus chapters, um, there was a lot of interest generated. And then the Thomistic Institute started to make um, some resources because, you know, basically it's like you go on YouTube, you look for Thomas Aquinas and you expect to find something, and the friars who, who started Aquinas 101 noticed that, like, oh, there's actually nothing really to explain the basics about what does Thomas Aquinas say, who is he, what's important about his, his thought and his influence. So just started making these simple um, YouTube videos explaining different themes. And so, uh, yeah, it's, it's, so it's basically an office in our seminary. Uh, two friars are assigned to it full-time, a director and an assistant. I was the assistant last year. And then a number of uh, lay employees, too. So it's a, a staff of about 
eight or nine people, all told. So that's the Thomistic Institute in a nutshell. What do you think? Yeah, it's a guerrilla institution. It's, uh, you know, it's um, based partly on the success of the, well, okay, yeah. It's, it's in the English-speaking world so far, mostly. Um, the one in Washington was the first, and then the director of that one was recently assigned to Rome to work at the Dominican College in Rome, and he started one there as well. And there's some in you know different parts of the world, like England, Ireland, Scotland. Um, I don't think that there's any in Spanish or other language-speaking countries yet. But uh, yeah, so it's this. It's basically easy to start a group. So that's been part of the success is that you know if you have a college campus, even if it's 50,000 people, um, and there's three students who want to start the Thomistic Institute. Great, they started up, they have some talks. Um, you know, they may get just a couple people at first, but then it grows and grows, and so it's been um, something that, yeah, has, it, there's 60, 60 some uh, college chapters in the United States, and, you know, a handful, five, six, seven or so in other countries. Mm hmm. And yeah, we talked uh, in the first session about how in the American and Eng you know, the English-speaking context, uh, there's a big opportunity for just talking about science, that Thomas and Aristotle fit surprisingly well with the pragmatic way of doing science. Um, so I think it, you, know, Father, you see Father James Brent is able to say, yeah, the science doesn't back up reductionism. That comes from a bunch of philosophers, basically. It's a sort of philosophical school, almost a religious belief that everything can be reduced to matter. It's not an idea that scientists themselves generated, and science doesn't really give evidence of it, so it's not a good scientific meta-theory. Um, and, and so, you know, in addition to having talks about philosophy and theology, Thomistic Institute will have talks about neuroscience, um, or evolution, or astronomy, you know, the origins of the universe, and just give a sort of basic thumbnail sketch of, of what we know scientifically and how it doesn't really interfere with what we know by faith. And you know, that's really liberating for a lot of people who are maybe depressed about the, the vacuum of, of existence that they're in. Thoughts, Father Heisen? Um, I just wanted to say that uh, I, I definitely encountered this in college when I went through it at um, St. Louis University, which was a Catholic school, but like in psychology, the psychology textbooks and uh, a lot of the things we were reading, um, there, was, there was not, it, they didn't always advocate a certain view, but it was, it was the thought that we there's there's something to be um, there's something within us that's transcendent that's not reducible to matter or the body was kind of often ridiculed laughed at that there would be this soul 
And free will was often doubted. It was almost the assumption was against free will. Um, like, you know, B.F. Skinner, you know, has probably kind of a sophisticated way of arguing against free will. And even when it seems to be free will, it's really an illusion. It's not really free will. Um, there's some other thing that your preferences and your genetics and nature, all these things combined that explain your choices and, and all choices. But what I kind of found puzzling when I was going through college is no one really talked about the implications to all this. It's like they didn't really want to embrace it because it's really dark. Because if everything is reducible to matter and there's no soul, free will is hard to explain by <laughs> matter alone because there's you don't you don't see characteristics, you know, in the material world that seem to explain free will uh, as we experience it. Um, there'd be no God, everything would end in death, because if nothing transcends matter, then obviously when our body decomposes, well, if we're reducible to the body, then we could decompose and that's it. Um, nobody wants that when somebody dies. Always somebody, you know, thinks about how there's some way that they live on and people have different views of that. So they, we resist it. But it just seemed like everywhere it was not questioned, and it was often assumed and taught that that there is this kind of um, it, it, you know things of things of God, things of, of anything that was transcendent was sort of doubted and looked on with suspicion and kind of uh, simple-minded and and so on. But people often didn't think about what that would mean if everything was reducible to matter, then it really is, it leads to nihilism or nihilism. And I always appreciated honesty. Like if people really wanted, if they really believed in this, then they should talk about, really, there is no meaning of life. But a lot of people wouldn't, even though the, the connection is so clear, a lot of people would kind of avoid that in some way um, and still kind of... So I, I just... Um, I've definitely experienced a lot of it in, in various textbooks, um, and I see the implications to what he was talking about, the existential crisis then that that leads to. Um, and you see the increase. The, there's an increase on the rise. There's um, atheists are on the rise, people that just doubt. I think it's a great opportunity to then, you know, when they're asking why, to try to uh, give good answers and attract them to, to the truth. But... You, you see it, though, and you see depression is on the rise, anxiety is on the rise, um, and a lot, of, a lot of issues that I think are related. Yeah, they have a lot of other um, causes, too, but or influences, but I think a lot of it is related to this existential crisis. Um, but it's not really acknowledged too much in, in our society. But I think that was a key point that I've definitely experienced. Any responses to that? Yeah, you want to? Will you? Thank you. Well, good evening. Uh, I was thinking about your mention to the simple materialism of the human being. That when your when your bodies die, it's over. 
and doing some readings, I was exposed to the idea of that there is one part of the human being that's immaterial. And the example is quite simple. Uh, imagine you have a dog and try to make an appointment with your dog. In 14 days, we will meet in front of the church. It will not work. But if you do this with a human being, the human being will be there. And that's because the human being has this capacity of get out of the paradigm of time and look to with perspective through the time. He can get out of this reality. He can get out of time. He can get out of the matter and understand from outside. People say that human beings are the only animals that know that will die materially. So if there is one component of the human being that has this capacity of being out of the matter, the matter and out of time, it means that when the biological and material part of the human being die, what happens with this other part? If this part will continue existing, this part should have been existing before too. So for me, it's what I always think when someone talks about or brings the argument that it's all about matter in human beings. Because if this argument is quite simple to understand through our own experiences that there is something completely material in this existence, and that's mysterious too. Yeah, good. Responses? Any responses? There's a, that reminds me of a, a video from The Onion about, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a joke news video, and uh, there's some scientists who are trying to teach a gorilla sign language, and they, you know, they succeed in teaching the gorilla sign language, and they, they manage to communicate to the gorilla that someday it's going to die, and they're so excited. <laughs> the gorilla is now depressed. It's able to understand that it will someday die, so uh, yeah. Um, no, yeah, so animals can't have consciousness of, uh, yeah, abstract ideas like, like dying or, right, like meeting somewhere um, for coffee or something like that. Um, good, okay. Final thoughts about against physicalist reductionism? All right, let's watch uh, what's a kind of, this is kind of a, a complementary video so if we are unwilling to accept the philosophy that there is only physical matter, then what's another option? In his ever-present work of creation, God gives being to many different particular things and many different kinds of things. He gives being to visible things like cats and dogs, grass, flowers, trees, sun and moon, human beings, and a host of other things. He also gives being to invisible things above us, like the angels, and invisible things below us, like subatomic particles. The evidence of common sense tells us that things of our everyday experience are real and come in many different natural kinds. Whenever we're talking about a particular thing in nature that is real and belongs to a specific natural kind and is irreducible to anything else, Aristotle and Aquinas call that particular thing a primary substance. In his work of creation, 
God is now giving being to a world of a bewildering variety of primary substances. Some are material, others immaterial. Some are very big, others medium in size, and still others very small. What all the primary substances have in common, and what makes each of them irreducible to anything else, is their substantial form. Thanks to their substantial forms, constituting many primary substances, large, medium, and small, it cannot be said that what is really real is just particles and forces, and that everything else is reducible to them. Rather, what is really real is you and me, cats and dogs, grass, flowers, trees, and perhaps particles and forces too, depending on how one understands them. Nature is a wonderful array of mysteries existing at many levels of perfection, all displaying the wisdom of God. God gives each really existing thing or primary substance its substantial form, and its substantial form is what makes a thing to be what it is, to be one, and to be intelligible. Let us consider each of these points. First, substantial form makes a thing to be what it is. The substantial form of a cat, for example, is what makes it to be a cat. A cat is an orderly whole with different biological systems, such as a cardiac system, digestive system, nervous system, and more. In order for these systems to work, the cat needs parts. Not just any kind of parts, but certain kinds of parts. The cardiac system needs a heart and blood. The digestive system needs a throat and stomach. And the nervous system needs a brain and spine and more. The substantial form of the cat is the order of the whole organism, but that order includes the order of all the subsystems, and all the parts of all the subsystems, and all the parts of all the parts. But the substantial form is not just the order or plan of a thing. It is also the inner source of all the activities or operations of the whole, all the systems and all the parts. Substantial form is the source of the beating heart, the firing nerves, and the active digestion going on. The substantial form fixes the developmental sequence of the whole cat from beginning to end, and the substantial form is the very being at work of the cat, driving it on in its development to its end. That is, to full development and operation in the optimal state of flourishing. All of this goes into the little expression that substantial form makes a thing to be what it is. But let us focus on one point in particular. The substantial form of the whole cat is what accounts for the parts, and the parts of the parts, all the way down, and the activities or operations of the parts. Philosophers have come to call this top-down, or whole-to-part explanation. The claim is that, in a primary substance, the form of the whole accounts for the parts, not the parts for the whole. Those who say the parts account for the whole tell a bottom-up explanation of what makes the cat to be what it is. And the bottom-up stories often imply that the cat does not really exist. It is not a primary substance, 
but reducible to something else. It is just particles, or physical things and forces at work invisibly in the cat. And the form of a cat is really an accidental form of the particles. When bottom-up explanations are absolutized across all phenomena, one implication is that all the things of ordinary experience and daily life are not really real. They are not primary substances. What is really real, we often hear, is rather invisible things and forces at the bottom of the world. And science alone can tell us what those are. But is that true? Does science obligate us to say that? No. Modern science does not rule out substantial form in the things of daily life or top-down interpretations of scientific principles and findings. In fact, in many ways, it is more consistent with science to say that a great many ordinary things have substantial forms, and the forms of wholes account for their parts and processes rather than the other way around. What is really real is you and me and our cats, dogs, and similar things. Science does not deny that, but welcomes it. It explains better, for example, a wide array of emergent properties and avoids undermining the general reliability of ordinary experience and common sense on which all science is based. Second, substantial form makes a thing to be one in a special way. Let us compare a cat with a car. A car has many parts, but when the whole car loses its form as a car, the parts continue to be what they are. The leather in the seat continues to be leather. The glass in the windshield continues to be glass, and the rubber in the tires continues to be rubber. A cat, too, has many parts, but when the whole cat loses its form as a cat, the parts do not continue to be what they are. The tail is no longer a tail, the eyes no longer eyes, and the heart no longer a heart. A severed finger, Aristotle says, is not a finger except equivocally so called. What he means is that although we call a severed finger by the name of finger, it is not really a finger, because a finger is essentially a living member of a living body, and the severed thing is neither a member nor living. So too with all the parts of a cat that has lost its substantial form. Though we may call them a tail, eyes, and a heart for a while, they are really different in kind from what they were in the cat. They no longer participate in a living organism and therefore are no longer living in any way. We can see now that the form of a car is accidental and makes its parts to be coordinated, but not to be what each one is. The form of a cat is substantial and makes its parts to be not only coordinated, but to be what each one is. Substantial form gives primary substances an irreducible unity, and because of substantial form, all the parts of primary substances are essentially participants of a whole that is really real. Finally, substantial form makes a thing to be intelligible. Understanding essentially consists of reading the forms of things in nature. 
It is like when a person is engrossed in reading a novel. The reader becomes the book, so to speak, and is mentally living the story. Human beings who study the things of nature become engrossed in reading the book of nature and mentally live the very forms of things in nature. If thought is one thing and things are another, then is there really knowledge? Aristotle realized that for there to be knowledge of a thing, the form in the thing and the form in our mind must be one and the same form. And that is what knowledge is, oneness of mind and things according to their forms. In his goodness, God gives being to a world of things having substantial forms, so that we may know the forms of things in nature, and ultimately, so that we might know him and love him and marvel at his wisdom forever. For readings, podcasts, and more videos like this, go to Aquinas101.com. While you're there, be sure to sign up for one of our free video courses on Aquinas. And don't forget to like and share with your friends, because it matters what you think. Okay, that one's a little bit more difficult. Yeah, yeah, I, I, uh, I was thinking at the end, I was like, man, maybe I should have been taking some notes on. Uh, yeah, I don't know, what are, you, what, are you, what are your thoughts? <laughs> opening thoughts, opening thoughts. Uh, just, I feel overwhelmed by it all. It's, um, it's a lot, and um, it's difficult to try to make sense of it all. Um, one thought I did have was there was a, a, an article in the Times a week ago, Sunday, uh, by a fellow by the name of uh, Russ Douthat, who's a regular columnist at the New York Times. He's a Catholic convert, and Father Hyacinth had mentioned to me that he, in fact, studied with um, a Dominican priest, I think I have that right, uh, which facilitated his, uh, his conversion. But I thought it was a, he made a very compelling argument for, for God. And one of the things he said, and I think it's appropriate to to what we're talking about tonight is one of his proofs was that science and the scientist and the researcher is able to study the cat, study biology, study the universe and make sense of it and see the logic of it. So I, I, I kind of think of here are these bottoms up people who, in the mind of Russ Douthat, were created by God and he has enabled them to explore the logic and the beauty of, of what's been created. And I, 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 I found that to be a very powerful argument, and it's a very different way of, 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 of kind of looking at the, the arguments as they were.
presented tonight, but I, I, I was kind of blown away by that. Yeah, so I think that, so I wanted to read that passage um, from St. John Chrysostom where he says that God took ordinary men and he made them into philosophers. Because it's strange and it doesn't necessarily reflect, you know, everyone's experience of being a Christian, like that we don't all have to be philosophers in the sense of like, be like Father James Brent. But yeah, so that was very much one of the themes in this video towards the end that God made things in such a way that our minds could kind of grab a hold of something true about them. Um, he didn't have to do that. And, and, and there's a lot of people who, who would assume that, um, who would naturally approach the world as something, you know, to be feared, something dark and even false. And it's really uh, Judaism and Christianity, which really became a, a cultural force saying, God made everything. It didn't come from some chaotic whole, and it's, and it's not ultimately dark. It's ultimately shot, with, shot through with light. And so, yeah, the fact that we can understand things at all. Karin Oberg, I think, in the, one of the earlier videos mentions, you know, the, just the orderliness of the universe is one of the reasons to think that God probably exists. So, so that there's this sense of God from the intelligibility of things, the, um, the fact that science is possible, and then that we probably take for granted that we live in a society where people generally think that, as opposed to a society which would say, no, nature is filled with dark powers and you need to master them through rituals. I mean, that's just what human beings tend to think. But the God of Israel kind of changed that gradually. And so then, also, he ends by saying that God wants us not only to come to know things in the world, but he made us this way specifically so that we could know him. And that's another thing that people have a problem with. They say, okay, I, I believe that we can understand things in this world, but I think God is beyond all, all of our powers of thinking. This is what my grandmother always says when I start to, t start to tell her something about, you know, um, you know, when I'm trying to argue with her, uh, she's a very intelligent and lively woman, and she, every, every time I sort of start making some progress, she says, oh, well, I believe in the God that passes all understanding. So, what Father James Brent is saying is that the God who made the world capable of being understood wants us to also understand him. And there's a deep mystery about the Trinity in that, because how did God make the world? He made it according to the Word, according to the Son, the Logos. That means that in making the world, he made it according to the pattern of the Son. So it's through knowing the Son, then, Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, that we are filled with a wisdom to know everything, 
not only by our natural powers of science and investigation, but the light that made everything capable of being understood. That was one of the earlier videos, too, from Father James Brent, that, um, that the same God who made nature calls us through our reason to a higher knowledge than the knowledge that we have by nature. So, further thoughts, responses. Did you put me on the spot here? Um, just curious how you would, I don't want to say this, how you would respond to somebody who, not me, but, but who's an atheist, uh, which, uh, who uh, thinks that um, everything can be deduced to science and totally rejects all that uh, Father Brent is saying. Um, I'm just curious how uh, one would or should, uh, other than ex extreme patience and and prayer, uh, respond to that. I mean, uh, well, sorry, in my case, it happens to be my brother. Uh, and so uh, I've tried, you know, explaining to him that, um, uh, yes, uh, science has some answers, but not all of them. Um, and to which he responded, well, yes, but uh, you seem to reject science. And the uh, first thing I said uh, to him was, no, uh, I just don't feel that science has all the answers, uh, but that you need uh, a uh, little bit of faith. Uh, and I uh, was just curious um, what a uh, accurate or appropriate response would, would be ra rather, rather than to say, no, you just, no, just, just, I just have a little bit of faith. So just curious as, as, as to your thoughts on that. Anybody want to take a hack, about it, hack at that? How to respond to someone who says that all can be reduced to science? I, uh, I mean, in the question about the proofs for the existence of God and Thomas Aquinas, there's two, you know, what he does is he starts out by listing what are the good objections to God's existence um, as he always begins his, um, his thinking. He starts with the objections. And um, there's just two, and they're very modern. One is evil, you know, evil exists, so how could there be a God? And the other one is it seems like there's a sufficient number of things to explain the things in this world. And there's basically two. Uh, nature itself, and then the human will. So he's at least giving, you know, and some people I think would agree to that too, that, that either it's all nature, and that's enough, or it's nature and human will, and those things kind of mixed together. And, we can understand those things. We don't need God to explain things. Um, 
So how does he respond to that objection? Well, besides giving, so first he explains how, by reflecting on reality, you always ultimately come to some first thing, which is outside of the order of reality. And that's kind of how the different proofs work, each of the five proofs in a different way. You know, that there's, there's an order of things, and then outside that order of things, there is a first, which is the source of all of those. And he, I mean, it's a very sort of simple application of that. He says, well, even if you have an explanation for everything in nature and everything in human will, you still need an explanation for each of those two things. Nature itself, where does nature come from? And the will, how is it possible that in nature there's this special thing that is outside of the order of natural causes. So basically it's this, you know, that there's, there has to be a first and has to be outside of the order of things. So um, that's, that's what St. Thomas says. But yeah, as far as, you know, how, how I would, uh, uh, you know, I, I'm very reactive to the kind of person I'm talking to. Try to read them. You got to read their mind, read their, read their heart, and you basically can't convince your family of anything. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, it takes a it takes a long time, I guess. Right. It's good to have something to bond with your family about. Uh, okay, more, more questions, thoughts. Replies to that. I guess my thoughts are: some somebody might wonder why why have a whole video on substantial form, and as Father Ephraim mentioned, it, it complements the previous video. But I think um, when they were talking about this top down versus bottom up, uh, you could even think of causality in a sense. Um, I think that what they're trying to do is point out that many things in nature, uh, there is a top-down. Um, now, I think when you think of Aristotle's four causes, they're kind of all things that contribute to something, and matter is one of the causes. And that's kind of, matter is the stuff from which something is made, obviously. Um, and so if you have wood, there, it's, it's kind of a, a matter that you get from a tree, um, and you can shape it in many different ways, into a table, into a chair. Um, so there, it has a lot of potentiality. You can make it into a lot of things. But when you shape it and make it into different, different things, in a sense, you're giving it a quasi, kind of quasi-form. Um, but there's, a, there's you, another something higher, taking this matter, organizing it, you know, so taking something that has lower organization, maybe, and making it more organized. So, in a sense, you you are depending on things of lower uh, organization. Um, they contribute. So, I think there's kind of going back, you know, both ways in a sense. But in a, but if you think more deeply, it's like, well, what makes wood to be wood? 
you know, and so there, you're going to look, you're going to talk about genetics, you're going to talk about the different molecules and, and uh, biology and, and, and things, but it's um, at any point, at any level in which you're trying to explain things, um, there's a kind of, you're going to appeal to some sort of organizing principle. Um, it's either within the thing or outside of the thing. And if it's within the thing, that's what form is. So even if you take an, you know, there's certain things that like a car, or like a table, have a kind of unity, but it's a little more accidental. You kind of, it's like a forced unity. You put things together, but it's not quite as unified as like a, an organism or even like an atom. An atom has this kind of inherent unity of the, with the, with the you know, the nucleus and the, um, and then the electrons, you know, so-called orbiting um, in our kind of limited understanding of atoms. But it has a kind of uh, unity, and, and you can break that unity, but it's tough, right? It's, it's kind of has a, a more natural unity than, say, a mountain where you just throw a bunch of dirt and it could be all kinds of different chemicals there, and it's mostly gravity and maybe a little shaping that, that basically gives it shape, but it's a very kind of accidental unity. But um, anytime when you have this inherent unity, it explains a lot below it. So the form of an atom, you know, it kind of explains the, the unity of it. It sort of has an organizing principle. It's going to explain a lot beneath it, like why the electron is doing what it's doing and so on. Um, now you can also, you can always go to the lower level and see what's the smaller, what's, what is this made of? What is an atom made of? Then you go to subatomic particles, and then what is the, what are those made of? And you know, at some point we we can only go so far. I think we've got what subatomic, and then there are various levels there. And but what are those things made of? Are like they strings, like string theory, or whatever else? I think it's really. But it's just at any point. Um, if you have any organization, you've got to sort of appeal to, to something to something else than just the stuff. You know, if you have a table, you have to say there has to be something more than wood to explain it. So, and I think, um, so I think it's part of understanding nature. Um, and I think science, Modern science, I think, would, would affirm a lot of this, that you, you have organization of things at various levels from the subatomic particles. They have their own organization, their own form to what's below them, to atoms, they have their own form to what's below that. So there's always like an organizing principle, which is kind of a higher principle. And if it's sort of unified within it, within the thing, it's what we call substantial form. If it's higher, then you're talking about another form organizing lower forms. Like if I were to organize marbles and it, to make a, to say a word or something like that, um, you're taking the form of a human being with intelligence organizing marbles. But the marbles themselves are not going to just create a certain shape without something outside kind of shaping that. So some other form, and ultimately, so the form is just the kind of thing. Um, and there's, you can see there's a kind of hierarchy, um, and ultimately it's pointing to God who is pure form and no, no, um, there's no potentiality, no matter in God. 
And even angels are pure forms, but there there has some potentiality within them. But when God alone is sort of pure actuality, this is I know it's getting very complex with you know Aristotelian kind of thought here, but ultimately it's like it kind of makes sense that there's this there's this form that's pure actuality that has to explain all other forms beneath. Um, I mean that. I'm not getting into a complex, sophisticated argument right now, but um, that's kind of in my own mind, you know, maybe the relevance of some of these things. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, no, that's good. I, um, I was sort of hoping to just, yeah, close by talking about, um, just talk for five, ten minutes about this idea of substance as matter and form and by just giving a little bit of the history of where these terms come from. So, uh, because this is in a way, I mean, who would you say invented science? Like if you had, I mean, it's sort of a wild thing to think about, but who is the founder of science? Yeah, I would say, okay, so God, you're saying God, uh, Gave Aristotle the idea. Okay, so we can agree, yeah. So God, Aristotle, by the help of God, um, and I think he might, he might admit that he had God's help too. He, I think, yeah, so, um, yeah, sort of invented what we think of as science. So science as the knowledge of something through its causes or the knowledge of something through a demonstration. So this is kind of a novelty at one point in history. It's sort of weird to think that it wasn't just, you know, I think there's a maybe a, an, an, a presumption that we've always been working on this project, but it's like, no, it hasn't really always been a project. It's sort of invented at a certain time. And the way that it's invented is there's a particular problem. There's this problem where some philosophers had come before Aristotle and they said basically, okay, what do, what do you have in the whole of reality? What do you have? You have being and then you have non-being. So there's only the possibility of this dual situation, being and non-being. And so what is non-being? Well, it doesn't exist. So this was the sort of conundrum, that if you're going to have these two things, being and non-being, we can understand being to a degree. It simply is, period. But non-being is not something that we can approach. So there were these different proofs, these proofs that non-being couldn't exist. Does anybody know what these proofs were called? You heard of Zeno, so the paradoxes of Zeno. So there were proofs that if something didn't simply exist, then it was impossible. So for instance, uh, for that chair to be where it is, it needs to move from over that wall to here, but it's impossible for it to move from that wall to halfway between there and here, 
because it would have to move halfway there and so on, such that it was infinitely removed from being here. Therefore, motion, or the chairs not being here, but rather being there, is impossible. So a lot of proofs, proofs of that nature. So that sounds counterintuitive, it sounds weird, but this was a sort of dilemma. The philosophers had come to a dilemma that any kind of non-being was impossible. And so you couldn't really understand anything except pure being, which is just everything. Everything just is. So the ability to understand anything is, was deeply limited because there was this dilemma set up between being and non-being. Okay, so that's the situation when Aristotle enters. Aristotle wanted to take this idea of non-being and say, hold on, non-being isn't just a thing. There's a lot of different ways of non-being. So Father Hyacinth was sort of talking about this, but I'm going to go into a little bit more. So there's different ways of not being something. And this is important for science. Okay, so the way that water is not boiling is different from the way that a brick is not boiling. A brick is not boiling, and it can never be boiling. I mean, maybe at some extreme point of heat, a brick was reduced to liquid, and then it can boil. But basically, it wouldn't be a brick. It would be several steps removed. So a brick is not something that could potentially boil, whereas water is. So that means that there's something about water's way of non-being that makes it able to boil. That means that there's something that we can know about the non-being of water that's not true of the non-being of a brick. And this is the idea of matter as having potential to be something. Okay, so it's this distinction about different types of non-being that gives birth to the idea that matter can be formed in certain ways. And the only point I want to make about that, so that's the first point, that science begins in a way with Aristotle pointing out that there's different kinds of non-being, and then, okay, that matter in this sense, in this broad sense, is a lot broader than the way that we think about matter. So we think about matter as basic particles of some kind, that it's sort of the things that we can't see, the things that are beneath the visible level, so atomic things or maybe even, you know, subatomic things. But matter in this sense can mean a lot of different things. So if you think about that example of a cat, breaking a cat down into the different systems that it's made up of, its nervous system, its uh, cardiac system, its uh, digestive system, those different systems are the matter and the cat is the form that gives all those matters being. 
So these different types of things, which aren't, they're not all pieces that are like each other. They're different in kind, but with respect to the whole form of a cat, they are its matter. So it's a very flexible concept. And by using this concept of matter and form, and thinking about how different matter can be ordered to different ways of being, different kinds of form, you get a whole variety of sciences. You get the ability, basically, to divide reality according to its joints. So that's, that's a phrase that's kind of popular in our, in our little world of philosophy and, and theology, that what Aristotle did is he took reality, reality is like a, like a beef, and he, he cut it at the natural joints. He found out where the joints were, and he said, this part's going over here, this part's going here, this is this science, this science belongs here. And, and by doing this, by distinguishing different ways of non-being, and their order towards different kinds of form, you have all of reality distinguished into different scientific subject matters. Okay, so that's a little bit of the early, the birth of science, I would say. Um, so, any thoughts or questions about that? Yes. Well, so I think your question is whether whether there's a limit to the kinds of substantial forms. Okay. Right. Okay, good. So science uh, is developing and its principles and its laws are flexible in relation to the different things that we identify in nature and, and nature in a broad sense, you know, nature in all of its possible manifestations, phenomena. Is that kind of what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Mm-hmm. Okay, so I think that you're giving a... 
yeah, a pitch for the idea that the ever-developing set of principles that we're working with, well, yeah, so it seems like you're talking about how we have different principles, and, and for the most part, they're proven, but, but in, a, some, in some senses, there's, there's the, the set is not complete, and our way of understanding things is developing. And then that, in a similar way, reality itself, the reality that we study, is developing. And we're understanding it better and or we're understanding it better. Because it seems that it is in some, some ways developing. That's a sort of surprise that, that we stumbled upon in the history of science, that uh, the different forms that exist are themselves coming to be and passing away, evolution. And then we're able to understand them better and through taking principles that we understand but also disposing of certain principles, or what would we, distinguishing them, so like perfecting them. Yeah, the famous example would be that, you know, Euclid had a sort of set of basic principles, and there were five of them. And one of them turned out to be not always true in the 20th century. <laughs> so that had to be, you know, you could have Euclidean geometry with five, or you could say, oh, we're going to have just four of them. And that's another kind of geometry. And that reflects both an advance in knowledge and an aspect of reality which inspired that advance, that advance in knowledge. So that our knowing reality reflects the sort of unpredictability of, of nature itself, that, that we haven't really pinned it down entirely. There's all these disputes in the sort of 17th, 18th century about how to think of nature, you know, and whether we should treat it as something that needs to be beaten or needs to be sort of romanced. So, uh, yeah, I think that's a, an important uh, poetic approach to things. Uh, but yeah, Francis Bacon was famous for saying that we should torture nature so that it gives up its secrets. And, um, and, and one of the objections to that from the sort of Aristotelian position is that, yeah, you can, you can pull nature apart and look and find all of its parts, and what you're gonna, then what you're going to know is you're going to know a dead cat. You'll have knowledge of a dead cat. If you want to have knowledge of a living cat, you can't torture it and pull it apart. You need to let it do its thing and study it as it, as it is, play it as it lies. Okay, any more questions? Any more thoughts? How about one closing thought or question or using? Okay, I'll, gi I'll give you one. Um, a favorite verse of the Dominicans is that it's Proverbs 27, 17. Uh, iron sharpens iron, and just so, constant contact with your neighbor will refine you. So we like to, we like to talk about how 
you know, it's okay to have discussions and, and argue things through uh, with people that you differ with because that's how you get sharp. That's how we treat one another as brothers too, so. Thank you, Father Ephraim. Um, so I just thought I'd mention that, uh, so part of this was the last night of the series. You can see it's kind of very incomplete in a sense, but that's perhaps uh, intentional. <laughs> so part of the reason for this is we thought we would just expose you to this series. And so um, in further series, we'd probably do something a little bit different, but this is something you can pursue on your own to watch the, the, the rest of the videos and, and then continue to watch them as they come out. Um, and you can, you're now kind of familiar with this resource. Um, I'm kind of thinking, and you can always give us your feedback, maybe in a further uh, instance of science and faith, we can get into specific things, like, you know, because specific questions about the origins of the universe, um, you know, evolution, sometimes some psychology, maybe physics, things that might, uh, that some people will use to try to challenge some some of our ideas and uh it should be good to show how all this can be thought of as compatible with the faith um so i think that would be you know that would be kind of interesting so hopefully this has been helpful to you though um and and you can see that there are there are a lot of ideas here that are are that are fundamental and and, and into the dialogue and you kind of need to lay a lot of foundations before you get into you know so that when you get into the details, um, we're sort of better equipped. And hopefully you can see that, uh, I think one of the cases we've been making is that there's so much that modern science has to offer, but there is a lot also with Aristotelian thinking, although not everything that Aristotle said is still valid, of course, and with St. Thomas Aquinas as well, and part of it is it just works well, very well, together well with uh, modern science. Could they could benefit from each other, um, and and help us to understand that there's more than science, um, more than the natural science as we see it, as well. Um, so why don't um, I'll go ahead and let you end in prayer. I just thought I'd give those words. I don't know if you have any final thoughts to to the series. Um, but thanks for coming and thanks for tuning in. Okay, let us pray. Almighty Father, you are the source of all light. Pour forth a ray of your light upon us. Give us an understanding of reality, also a sense of the guardianship that you have given to us. May we borrow light from our guardian angels. May we participate already in the life of heaven through the grace of your Son, Jesus. May your Holy Spirit give us wisdom so that we may know all of your works and speak a word in good time to our neighbors that will save them and build them up. Through the intercession of St. Patrick, may this time of sacred study and discussion be for our salvation and the salvation of the whole world. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go in peace.